You're listening to a DM podcast. Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, adman and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes The Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. Sean Turnell is an economics professor who has recently published a book called An Unlikely Prisoner. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said what Sean Turnell endured in his 650 days of incarceration is something that no human being should have to endure. Yet he has done it with grace and even in inhumane conditions with profound humanity. And he's right. Sean was an absolute delight when he took the Five My Life Challenge. So, Sean, how are you going mentally and physically? I'm doing good. Um, I have some down days, definitely. Uh, but for the most part, my days are up. Um, and it's hard not to, I think, in a place like Sydney. So the environment, my family, the whole idea of being free and all of that, yeah, means definitely more up days and down ones. And how long is it since you have been free? It's almost exactly a year. Um, so this is quite fresh. This is very fresh. Yeah. Yeah, yep, very fresh. Okay. And, and you were launching your fabulous book last night in the State Library, I gather. I was indeed. This, um, this is an unlikely prisoner because you are indeed looking at you, an unlikely prisoner. Most definitely. My, my physicality above all, I think, is the first thing that strikes people about being an unlikely jailbird. <laughs> well, 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 can I say uh, as politely as possible is there aren't many men that are the same height as me. Indeed, Nigel. Well, you may say that I couldn't possibly comment, except to say that I know I'm shorter. <laughs> well, no, because normally I have to stand on a box when I'm next to my guests. <laughs> Indeed, no. I, I, I'm the person everyone likes to be photographed next to. <laughs> and you mentioned the down days. Have you? You've got physical ailments, or or you get a bit blue, or a combination of the both. What, what's the combination of both? Physically, I'm mostly okay. Beyond the issues you get as a 59 year old, so you know creaking bones and all that. But the physical thing above all is my teeth. Oh, um, okay. So I broke my teeth in in the prison. Um, but of course, your, your teeth start to go at this age anyway, right? And and yeah, I just have terrible problem with my teeth. So I'm always getting dental work, and I've got more in about a couple of weeks. And I am an utter utter coward when it comes to the teeth. Um, so <laughs> so if I sound obsessive about the teeth, um, yeah. So so the teeth is the major physical thing. Um, mentally, mostly okay. Uh, the biggest problem I have is dreams. Uh, we we don't have control, you know. So so I have recurring dreams, which is something that I never ever thought really existed. I thought that that was just a movie trope, um, but it's real. And I keep having this same one where I'm in the prison. I get a document saying that I can be released or I will be about to be released. And I go up to the prison guards, up to the gate, and I give it to them. And they look at it. And I should say Myanmar, where I was in prison, is an incredibly bureaucratic place. And there's something wrong. 
there's a stamp missing, a signature missing, it's got the wrong date, and I have to go back to the cell. And and very often, and I'm sure everyone experiences this, right, where you're in a dream and you know it's a dream and you're trying to wake up. And so usually then I start groaning or shouting and my wife sort of has to fully wake me up to get me out of it. And, and when I have bad dreams, I've got a recurring one about about exams, um, but it's actually a euphoric process when I wake up. Do, do you experience that or is it just a level thing? Do you go, yippee, I'm actually out of jail? I think it's a level thing now. Eh? I think maybe at the beginning it mm. was sort of, um, yeah, that, that full realisation, no, I'm not there, I'm free. Um, yeah, I think it's levelled out now to the point, mate, where I think it's just an irritation. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we should get into your choices. Um, we always start with the film on Five My Life, uh, and you've chosen the 1968 Burt Lancaster, The Swimmer. Tell us why you like it and tell us why you've chosen it. Well, so my introduction to this movie was unoriginal, but but this is probably how it happens for most of us, right? I had a really good friend named Alison Vickery, who I shared a house with. She was she couldn't sleep one night, and she got up and she said, I saw this incredible movie last night called The Swimmer. And she was so going on about it so much that we eventually just, you know, back in the days of hiring it from the video store... It's the most incredible movie, as you say, 1968, Burt Lancaster. And probably people will remember, Burt Lancaster was physically an incredibly impressive-looking man. Hollywood, you know, leading man to the, to the max sort of thing. But he was a particularly good comedian, I think, because of that, you know, juxtaposition against his physicality and all that. And so The Swimmer is this very, very odd movie, as you say, made in 1968, and with a lot of the touches, the late 60s, early 70s, that, that sort of surreal filmmaking and the music and so on. So the combination of all of that, it's based on a very short story by John Cheever. And it's about a guy called Ned Merrill, uh, who through the course of the film is basically having a breakdown. And, and, but when we first see him, he's swimming across a pool. And he gets out of the pool and then declares in this sort of really inspiring way that he's going to swim home. And so it turns out he's in a neighbour's pool and that if he thinks of all of his friends across the valley, and it's set in Connecticut... If he swims in all the pools of all these friends across this valley in Connecticut, he'll get home. So he's going to swim the Lucinda River, the name of his wife. And at first it's great, like he, he's, it becomes apparent, or, or we think rather, that he's this incredibly successful advertising executive or something like that. But then pool by pool, his story begins to unwind I better not spoil the ending, I suppose, but but it heads in a totally different direction. But it, but it also has cameo appearances by some extraordinary actors who would become famous later on. Um, Kim Hunter, the lady who was about to find fame in the Planet of the Apes series. Yeah. Um, Joan Rivers has a strange little cameo as well. Um, but, yeah, just an amazing movie. But it's the combination of this psychological journey, this extraordinary music, and just absolutely inspiring performance by Lancaster. And everyone who sees it, uh, because, you know, down the years I've said to people at parties, you know, have you seen The Swimmer? And anyone who has has the same reaction. It's sort of like, oh, my God, you've seen that movie. Well, I'm going to ask you, because it's been 40 years, you are allowed to do a spoiler. I think it, it's not like it's just been released. So tell us about the ending. 
Well, so the ending is that he finally arrives home. So he gets to the end of this journey and we find out that, in fact, he's a bankrupt, that he's been leaving unpaid bills everywhere, that his wife and his children, who he celebrates throughout the journey, have actually left him. And he finally arrives home and the home is all shuttered up broken windows and the weather, which begins really fine, a beautiful, sunny Connecticut day, uh, it, beget, it gets stormy and he and the wind is howling, it arrives at his home and he sort of collapses to the ground in the fetal position, uh, sobbing at, yeah, the disaster that his life actually is. Um, so even though, like, it sounds like such a downer, but, but it's not. It's oddly inspiring. And, and, and why... Does it resonate with you so much? I'm almost worried to ask, given the given the, the narrative arc. I think it it resonates for me because of, uh, partly it was a period of my life that I love to think about. So I was young, living in a shared house, no responsibilities. Yeah, just a time because I would have been in my mid-twenties. We were watching movies, reading books, and that, that was the main aim of life. So I think it's that as much as anything else. And I guess, you know, thinking back at it, you know, your own psychological and, and physical journey through life and as it becomes more complex, and I guess that's what happens to him. It's a great question, Nigel, because actually I hadn't really thought about it from that end. Why does it resonate? And maybe that is what it is, because in many ways it sort of tracks all of our lives, right? Yeah. This yeah. sunny sunny beginning and then this yeah growing complicated story i mean i hope i won't end up in the fetal position <laughs> like that but but i guess you're yeah, gonna, you're gonna get home today and the house will be empty yeah, <laughs> i love things that have got a great concept so the bloke who wrote the short story it's, it's a bit like the title desperate housewives you go you're on to a winner even if the program's rubbish just because mm. the, the title's good if you go you come up with the concept someone's going to swim home along a river that's not a river, it's everyone's pool. You go, oh, that's great. You, you, you know, wow. And, and then obviously it's a great film anyway, but you go, but just it's, it's just such a good concept. But obviously in a, a well-off sort of suburb, because mm. that's who would have swimming pools, is would you mind telling us a bit about your upbringing, your childhood, your mum, your dad? Yep. Um, so very solid working class Australian background. Grew up at Macquarie Fields, which is near Campbelltown, southwestern suburbs of Sydney. Yeah, normal sort of household. My, my dad was a painter on the New South Wales railways, a very good one. So he was a sign writer. He used to get the, the difficult jobs, the sort of trains they use for the royal family and all that. He would sort of paint the scroll work and all that. Um, my mum was a homemaker and then a teacher's aide, very focused on children, not only within our family, my sister and I, but also with kids, like just wonderful with kids, uh, uh, you know, very compassionate lady. Um, yeah, so very solid, oh, I would say um, almost ideal family. I, I just yeah. love it when people have that narrative. It's just brilliant if you get spat out into the world from a foundation of love and stability it doesn't really matter what level you were at because yeah. what's important is you know dinner times with mum and dad and your sister and what's your sister doing now uh so my sister is a banker right. uh and macquarie bank she's very good um so she's she's the one who makes the money um <laughs> <laughs> and um but but both of us my, my parents were obsessed about education Right. Um, my mum was forced out of school when she was about 12 years old, uh, even though she was the most sort of brilliant student. She lived up in the country at a place called Hill End, uh, just outside of Bathurst. Um, so so because of her own uh, education just being cut short, even though she loved it, she very much instilled the idea that education was everything. 
and reading was everything. So we began that way. And so my sister and I, you know, both went to uni with the sort of first people in the family to go to university and things like that. So, yeah, so education, reading, that, that was sort of the way out. When I say the way out, yeah, we certainly weren't escaping anything problematic. It was a sort of profound nest of love, you know. I mean, it was, um, yeah, again, if I think back at it, it was just ideal childhood. A profound nest of love. I am writing that down. <laughs> I'm writing that down. <laughs> now, the, the reading and education is the perfect link, mate, to the second choice. Uh, and indeed, not just the second choice, but your second choice, because you have chosen Cultural Amnesia by Clive James, Notes in the Margin of My Time. Yeah. Wow. Could you describe the book uh, and then tell me why you've chosen it? Most certainly. So this book was... Gosh, I, I can't overstate how important this book was uh, because the, the time in the prison in Myanmar, this book was the one I wanted. Um, so I was able to get books sent to me in the prison, but there was one particular ask I had of my wife, which was this book. So probably people know Clive James. He's, he's famous as a comedian, really, um, of sort of mock TV documentaries, particularly sending up Japanese game shows and things like that. Um, and he used to have a, a series called Postcard From, and Clive would go to a city and there'd be, you know, all sorts of pratfalls and all that. Uh, but beneath that, Clive James is a really brilliant guy, and he's, uh, he's sort of semi-autobiographical novels, which are, are called unreliable memoirs, one, two, three, four, five, six, or whatever it went to. Incredibly funny and all that. So you knew he's really smart. But in many ways, cultural amnesia is the opposite of that. It's it's the foundations. It's not the it's not the stuff on the top. It's what led him to be the humanist he always was in, in his comedy, but this is really a statement of those values. I actually think it's sort of like a Bible to humanism. But what it is, it's a funny sort of format book, and as you've said, eh, like notes from the... Uh, from the, the margin of my the time. margins of my time. So it's a sort of... It, it consists of about 100 essays that are divided up under people's names. Most of them are authors, and it's his reaction to those authors. But Clive James being Clive James, it's not at all disciplined in that way. So he might begin an essay that's titled Adolf Hitler, but there'll be huge segues here and there on to talking about Abbott and Costello or Jerry Lewis or uh, Graham Kennedy in Australia or Damer Edna Everidge or whatever. Like So he just uses them as a riff onto so many things. So we get, firstly, his enormous reading and, and knowledge of literature. Yeah, as I say, being a Bible of humanism, it's really about, in essence, what is the purpose of life? He's got a great line in there in defining humanism as being extensions to the created world and, and that that's almost the objective of life, but particularly the objective of an artist or an intellectual to expand the created world. And, and that's almost his yardstick in thinking about all those names. Did this person expand the created world or not? He's very harsh on some people. John Paul Sartre is a particular <laughs> hate figure for Clive James. But, can, but can, I, can I give you a quote from Sartre? I, I, I just love the book. Not even Sartre could be wrong all the time, although he tried hard. Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, it's so brilliant, Ozark. Um, but so many others. And, and it was through this book, actually, that, that I got to know about another of who's now become a hero of mine, a historian called Mark Block. But it was the essay that Clive James wrote about him that really, um, yeah, inspired me to think about Mark Block as well. But yeah, but it's also full of, I think, the, the responsibilities of intellectuals and how intellectuals can go so badly wrong. Um, and I guess we all know this, right? But Clive James very much celebrates the idea that intellectuals, when they go wrong, they really go wrong. And they don't have the sensibility of normal people, basically, that the average person is much better at deciding plain right from wrong. And that too many intellectuals end up in the services of totalitarian regimes and doing unspeakable things because they're so caught up in ideology, whereas the average person would say, no, that's just wrong. That's wrong. But an intellectual can uh, convince themselves of anything is a message that really comes through with it. So, yeah, it's a really serious book, but a very, very funny book. Um, I remember when I first had access to it. So it was published in 2006. When I first encountered it, my initial reaction was negative. I I thought, is this not a bit pretentious? Uh, Because a lot of the people's names are not common. Um, there are often, uh, in fact, there was a, there's a preponderance of people out of Vienna, pre-World War II, that, that Jewish intellectual elite out of, out of Vienna. And so often they're people's names who you've only vaguely heard of, the, the people who you hear of all the time, but you never read. It's full of a lot of names like that. And so my initial gut reaction was, ah, this is, ah, come on. But then I got into it and I just loved it. And it has particular resonance for me, too, because uh, it's dedicated to Aung San Suu Kyi, who I worked with in Myanmar. It was the whole reason I went there. So I took a, a copy of it to her in about just after she got out of house arrest in about 2013, something like that. I took it to her and Clive James was still alive then. Oh, and you, did you tell him? I did. Oh. I did. It was one of, the, one of those things, you, you know, where in life where you think of things and you think, no, I can't do that. Yeah. I better not do that. Yeah. But I'm so thankful I did. I just, all I did was I looked at the publisher yeah. in the front of the book and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to tell Clive that I sent her the book. I gave her the book. So I wrote an email to the publisher and in that usual fan way, it said, <laughs> Look, you know, if there's any way you could get this to Clive James. And about a week later, I get this wonderful email back from Clive James just saying how just so pleased he is that, that she got the book uh, and she read the book and all that. So that's back in 2013. But then, of course, I end up in Myanmar. I end up as a political prisoner in Myanmar with Aung San Suu Kyi. But, yeah, got an opportunity <laughs> to get books. And I said to my wife, look, the book I really, really want is cultural amnesia. So Ha, my wife, sent it through the Australian Embassy, but you know what they did? The front dedication page. They ripped it out. No, we took it out. Yes, yes. In a coded way, I said to my wife when I said, could you please send cultural amnesia to me? I said, darling, (laughs) you'll know what to do. Open the book. And, of course, the guards were all listening to me on the phone. So I just had to say, Ha, open the book, darling. You'll see there's a page please just remove the page that you think needs to be removed. And sure enough, she did it. And I was so happy. I got the book and I remember opening to where the dedication page was and just seeing just a tiny sliver of where the page was. And my wife is always so skillful at everything. Yeah, she just so neatly and so close to the spine had used a razor blade just to take that page out. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Were you in the same jail? I was. I did, yeah. So, so, so yeah. A, this book is, I, 
it's one of the best books I've ever read. Yeah. I, 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 and, and, I, and I share your your journey with it. I sort of think, I mean, I've got enormous respect for Clive James, but when when this is presented to you, I don't think you'd be human if you didn't think, oh, take your hand off it, mate. You, yeah, I mean, come on. Self-indulgent twaddle. 106 people. You're basically saying, look at me. I've read all these things. Yep. <laughs> right? But you're Clive James, so I'll give you a, a yep. free pass and read a couple of pages. It's brilliant. Yep. It is it's sensational the way that he writes. He, he, he in one of the one of the chapters about again someone I've never bloody heard of. He riffs on how you respond to criticism, and he goes two of the best pages I've ever read. And it's got nothing to do with the person he's writing about. It's just, it's just yeah. Clive being Clive yeah. and talking about you know someone says oh I didn't like your book and and yeah. you think they've said I think your children are ugly. Yeah. No, no, they just said you didn't like your book. They're allowed to. <laughs> yeah. yes. you know, he he really gets the human condition and i think i mean he says in the introduction it took him 40 years to write i think it is a staggering achievement and there are people i know you're being interviewed by the financial times uh tomorrow i i i think how how can i say i think it's his crowning achievement Right, and yeah. you go. That's a big thing to say. Yeah. Clive James did a lot of things, but you go. Well, yeah, you've got you got the piss taking Japanese TV show, or you've yeah. got cultural amnesia. Yeah. Uh, so, what I'd love to ask you, which is a tough question, given you haven't been warned, is you are a bright, accomplished bloke who is known now because you were banged up in in pokey, uh, you know, unfairly for a couple of years. But before that. What would you say was your crowning, your intellectual um, output or, or professional output that you were most proud of before this chapter of your life? Yeah, so that that actually is an easy one, mate. And, oh, okay. and it's another book, right? That that and and let me preface this by saying it's an academic book, right? <laughs> right. So it's it's read by about ten people. Um, <laughs> but it was a book about uh, Myanmar or Burma, uh, as it was for most of the history that I talk about there. It's a history of Burma's monetary and financial system. Sounds, sounds a page turner, mate. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds as dull as can be, right? Um, but it was a labour of love. Took me ten years to write. Uh, I had to visit archives all around the world and yeah intellectually and so on mate it was um yeah it, it it stretched me it made me think about i mean the risk of getting too wonky about it but w- w- one of the things that that attracted me to the whole study of money and banking is that when we think about money it's one of those things that in the modern world has no physical manifestation at all anymore no intrinsic value at all and yet we direct a large part of our life to the earning of it and we make all these decisions on the basis of nothing that in the end is a leap of trust and faith. That's it. And so wh- when we think about the meaning of money, why we respond to it, how governments produce it, uh, how the world is is made up, th- how it's a medium of decision making amongst national groups, individuals, corporations, all that sort of stuff. What an incredible thing. What an incredible uh, technological device that, that brings us together or separates us or what, whatever. So in dealing with that, mate, through a country like Burma or Myanmar, that has had such an extraordinary and tragic history and so on, tells us a lot 
I think not only about the meaning of money, but the meaning of human organisation and how we relate to each other and all that. So, um, yeah, so just in the writing of that book, and it sort of begins in the 19th century, about when the Brits first took in Burma into the British Empire for the final time in about 1882. So it sort of begins in 1882, takes it all the way up to about 2009, which is when it came out, and all the ups and downs and, and how money reflected and the movements of money, etc., reflected history, changing technologies, changing cultures and all of that. So that's the one. So don't be shy. Tell us the book's title and where people can get it. Well, so the book is called Fiery Dragons and it came out of a quote in a royal commission. So the Brits called a royal commission into the banking system in Burma in 1936 because in the middle of the Depression, the banking system in Burma, so it was part of the British Empire, all collapsed. So the Brits called a, a royal commission into it. And a uh, representative of the Burmese ordinary folk got up and said that the banks are like fiery dragons parching the land, scorching all before them. And I remember when, when I'm going through this Royal Commission and these old notes in the Bank of England vault uh, archive, I came across this co- quote and I thought, that's the title. Straight away, I didn't even need to think of another title after that. I thought, that is the title of the book, it, it, Fiery it, Dragons. Well, like Desperate Housewives, <laughs> it's fantastic. And, and, and can I just go onto Amazon or Dimmux or yeah, yeah, so it's it's not newly being printed, so I know it, so it's reasonably expensive as a paperback. Um, but funnily enough, the rights to it have just been resold, uh, possibly you know, because of subsequent events. So I think it is going to come out again to, soon in volume. But it's certainly around roundabout. It is available on, you know, the electronic form and all that. But, yeah, intellectually, that that's the book that I'm most proud of. So you and your sister, mate, you, you, you are titans of the global the global machine. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> but I, I like to think a little bit off-centre, if, if you like, um, because, yeah, I think for both of us, it's sort of this, yeah, what... what what is the meaning of all of this? You know, r- rather than simply making the monetary units, what do they mean? What, what, what? Yeah, what, what are they about? What, is, what do they tell us about? So I, I love the way you talk about there's no physical manifestation. It's just a number on a computer screen. Yeah. If yeah. someone said, if you clicked on and it said naught, not seventy-five, yeah. you go, what? Well, it's just gone. Well, <laughs> but it's even more bizarre than that, right? Because all it is is a liability of that bank. So it's a promise of that bank to give you at some point in the future this thing, which, by the way, is not even defined. Um, to me, the, the the wonderful giveaway is is in the British currency. So the pound note to this day says the directors and court of the Bank of England promised to pay the bearer of this note the sum of, say, yes. £20. Yes. And you think... Hang on, isn't this twenty pounds? <laughs> but of course, it's, it, it's a representative yes. receipt for what used to be a physical metal yes. somewhere, but it's not even that. Yeah. I mean, it's it's wow. Crypto, which I don't understand, and people criticising it for being utterly ludicrous, which I'm sure it is, but no more ludicrous. It's just that we've accepted for centuries the the current ludicrousness, and you go, well, <laughs> it's still. Just numbers on a computer screen. Totally, mate. Totally. Well, so one of the things I, I taught at Macquarie Uni, uh, I taught money and finance and so on. And, and one of the things I used to tell the students, based on some psychological literature, is that most people, when they open a bank account and they put money in, they, they have a feeling that it's sitting in that branch physically in a vault somewhere. 
But of course, it's not even there at all. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's absolutely nowhere. And and exactly you've said, mate, it's a massive leap of faith, which is why, of course, when it crumbles, it goes wrong so quickly and so horribly, which itself is actually profoundly interesting, you know, because when trust ap- disappears, money goes. It completely disappears. It has no existence at that point. Which I suppose, I mean, there were centuries and centuries where it literally was gold coin. I mean, the coin would yep. be, you know, it's worth what it's worth because yep. if you weighed it, it would be, you know, an ounce of gold. Yep. And, and, and we see that come back whenever trust vanishes. So, you know, to take up Myanmar, people don't save in anything but gold and physical items now. That's it, because they do not trust the state, they do not trust the banks and so on. So when trust disappears, that's when suddenly our old notions come back to the fore and the yeah, the analogue world comes in and knocks the digital one sideways, basically. Well, talking about the old world, that's another perfect link to your third choice. And all the songs on Five My Life get put on a wonderful uh, Spotify playlist. So there's incredible variety. Uh, And you are adding to this variety because you have chosen the theme from the Battle of Britain, played by the Royal Air Force Central Band in 1969. I think this is terribly revealing, Nigel, and perhaps not in a good way. So I spent my younger years obsessed by this stuff. I think for someone of my generation, this is what it was, right? Saturday afternoon TV was full of wonderful old British movies, Reach for the Sky, Sink the Bismarck, um, you know, and then the Americans' Great Escape and so on. But, yeah, for me, above all, the Battle of Britain, 1969, beautiful colour production of these spitfires, you know, fighting for freedom, the whole Churchillian thing. But the theme song is just so inspiring and and you just want to leap into a spitfire and take off into the air. Um, So it was always on my mind, you know, again, as tune that's just sort of locked in the back of your head. But why it was so important was that when I was in the prison, there's some really dark moments, you know, stepping over the threshold into the prison. Uh, standing up to hear the judge's verdict and all that. And and music has always been really important in my life, but I know nothing about it. I'm profoundly ignorant. I, I don't know the languages. I can't talk meaningfully about music, its history, any of the technical stuff. I can't play a musical instrument, nothing like that. But it means so much to me. And so I would summon music all the time. But where I'm going here is that at those critical moments, there was one tune that I summoned up, and it was this one. Um, and I and I could, would just hum it to myself, and it was a way of thinking, I suppose, firstly sort of to buck up my spirits, but also sort of contextualise it a bit and say, look, these people stood up for freedom. Most of them lost their lives. Young people, prime of their life, they never had the life. And so it was sort of, yeah, it, it put things in a little bit of perspective as well um, because, you know, I got to, yeah, by then I'm 58, 
I got all all the way to that. It was sort of a privilege in a sense, and you know, because I always thought, okay, they're going to lock me away for a bit, but I'll I'll get home at some point. So yeah, so I I think it's that. But but also though, just the physical stirring. I mean, I defy anyone to listen to it and and not to feel the tug of you know. But it's a little bit reactive. Um, so I'm I'm sort of semi worried about how people might <laughs> yeah. perceive. You're this. worried you're not reading the cultural room. <laughs> no, <laughs> this is no. five of my life. Not yes. <laughs> Don't worry. Yes. Yeah, so it's not PC <laughs> in any way, um, but yeah, it just it just has an impact on me. And and you know, I I really took seriously the choice of the five. But this was the one I thought, you know what, I could go for something that that might be you know better suited to the times. So I thought, no, 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 you got to tell the truth. Well, I, I love it. It's, it's authentic, and I and I love the fact that it actually helped you in the dark moments. And and it makes me want to ask. Um, and, and I don't I don't want to go anywhere that you don't want to go. But for our listeners to describe the the setup in the jail. So, so w- w- were you banged up with a paedophile or a murderer? Were you physically threatened? You know, what, what was your two years like? Comfy sofa and Netflix or um, <laughs> could you describe it for us? Yeah, no, certainly not the latter. <laughs> so it's basically tiny cells, often horrible. So the main prison I was in is this wonderfully named insane prison, um, <laughs> spelt different than the than the affliction, but nonetheless. And it was a prison built in the 19th century, uh, again, under the British Empire, and it was built in a way to intimidate, basically. Um, although it was also built in a design inspired by the social reformer and philosopher uh, Jeremy Bentham. So it was sort of like a big wagon wheel, giant tower in the centre from which you could see all parts of the prison. It looks um, amazing from the air. It's, oh, it, yeah. it's incredible. Yeah. I, just, I mean, it's just an amazing place. I mean, funnily enough, or awfully enough, I used to see it from the air because I used to be always on planes leaving Yangon there's, there's International. A picture in your book, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and I would see this thing and I can remember thinking in 2018, 2019 when I'm over there, just thinking, oh God, I don't, I'd hate to visit that place, you know, let alone be in the damn place. Um, yeah, but the cells were, you know, tiny, but really run down, rusty old iron bars, concrete, dirty, filthy sort of floors with water laying on them, rats coming in and out, insects. Um, I was always on my own uh, in the cells, but but next to other people in cells. The Myanmar regime never wanted me to interact too much ah, okay. with other prisoners, so they always made sure I was on my own. So that, that might have been an advantage in a way or not. I mean, I mean awful for your mental health, but yep. it means you're not banged up with people who might have done your physical harm. That's right. And, and in fact, you know, I'm a fairly private sort of person. And, and so actually, I like that that part to be yeah to be honest about it um and particularly is w- w- once the cell doors were open which there were for a few hours each day i could talk to people anyway and the people were so yeah the cells were awful the people were fantastic and here obviously the other political prisoners some of whom i knew some of them just really young people who were just fantastic and they saved my life they were the most impressive people with nothing with less than nothing and their courage and compassion to me was just off the scale so yeah obviously the political prisoners but to be honest, even the criminals. Um, so I think the people who stood out, there was a bunch of Taiwanese drug traffickers who were just fantastic. Young kids they were. Salt the, of the earth. <laughs> salt of the earth. Um, and they used to remind me of my students uh, and my nephews and so on. Right. You know, and, and I, you know, I probably not. Well, not I'm probably naive. I am naive yeah. still, notwithstanding everything. Yeah. Um, so I thought they seemed to be pretty innocent young guys. Um, there was another, you know, I only just thought about this in walking here today uh, about the other prisoners. There was another group of old Nigerian 
scamsters. Right. Uh, like the, the sort who ring you up and send you those emails saying, you know. Um, and, and they were in Myanmar, I think, to run some sort of scam with ATMs. And they'd been put in the prison. But their si- situation was really desperate because their government didn't want them back. Right. So not, not, And Nigeria wouldn't pay to repatriate them. So they'd all served their sentences. But they were still in the prison because nobody wanted them. But they were really clever guys uh, and very funny. Um, and so, I, yeah, I, I got to have a chat to them. Uh, yeah, really unlikely. But, but, yeah, they were nice to me. All the prisoners were nice to me, basically. And, and what about the, the staff? Bit of a mix on that one, eh? Um, so m- most of them were okay. Most of them, likewise, in desperate situations themselves because Myanmar is, is shockingly poor. Um, and most of the prison guards had no other option, you know, yeah. and, and the conditions they live, often they lived in a sort of humpy themselves just outside the jail. So, yeah, that, that, they weren't people of privilege or anything like that. I guess what, one of the problems is that I guess to be a prison warder will sometimes attract people who have no other choices uh, or, you know, out of a sense of duty and compassion maybe, but also you get the saddists as mm. well who, who want to be in that. So ran into a few of those for sure. Um, but, yeah, but for the most part they, they, they were they were pretty good and and not not in a good condition themselves. And in fact, some of them were like I think in terms of poverty and things like that, almost in a worse position than I was as yeah. a prisoner. So, um, and I would occasionally give them food and things like that. So, and got to be friends with some of them. Or also, I another book I've been given gave me a good clue that one of the most important things in in that sort of situation, if you're a hostage or a prisoner, is to make some sort of human connection to your Mm -hmm. captors. And so one of the things the young prison guards often had on were English Premier League jerseys. Ah, Yeah. And so I used to use that as a way of making a connection because I'd I'd spend some time travelling around England and all that. And so they might be wearing a jersey of Manchester United or Liverpool or Chelsea or something. And I would say, oh, you know, I went to Manchester once. And I I said, you know, I went to the ground. It was so great. And and, uh, they would, you know, really perk up. And and, um, yeah. But I do remember too, though, just desperately trying to think all I could remember, you know, about Manchester United and Liverpool and all that. And I'd sort of, you know, lost touch a bit in the last few years. Um, but because I was able to come up with some sort of stories, they then responded, you know, about new players and, and all that. So, yeah, so so that was interesting. Uh, what was the telecommunications like? Were you in touch in any way? Did you have a radio or a Nothing phone? like that. No, they're, they're obsessed at making sure that there were no electronic devices or anything like that. So, yeah, so very much back in the analogue world. So so when my wife and son was able to get me books, they were physical books, so new appreciation of just, you know, physical books and so on. But I could be in touch with her. So after about two months where I was completely in in solitary, completely isolated, after a few months, every few weeks, I could have a phone call uh, with the Australian Embassy and they would put my wife on the phone. And so she would be able to tell me things and I would be able to get messages to her about getting books, um, food. She was able to send me food, which was just, you know, a wonderful part of the support process. But, yeah, so I, I could be in touch eventually eh, after, after a while. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the wonderful fact that you could actually get books. Yeah. I mean, what a life saver. Gosh. I, I, and, and when you said you always had hope that you would get out, Why? I applaud your sunny disposition, but uh, I mean, I think after a couple of months, I might think, fuck, I'm here forever. Yeah, and and Nigel, I increasingly thought that, eh? actually, as time (laughs) went on. Um, 
but I, but I still managed to hang on. So the, the tradition in Myanmar was always that when they arrested foreigners, they would usually just deport them. So th- this is why for me the whole thing was a bit of a getting of wisdom in a way because um, initially when I was arrested, I thought, oh, okay, you know, they're going to try and just frighten me and then boot me out and, okay, this is going to be horrible, but just stick with it. Um, and I maintained that for a long time, you know, forever this idea they were going to do that. Then when, when they put me on trial and laid charges, but this is about six months in. And the trial, just for listeners, is you're a spy. You were, Jay, right, you were James I, Bond. You're I was not James an economics Bond. professor. <laughs> exactly, mate. And, and I mean, just on that, and James Bond is the one to use because they're obsessed. The, the military in Myanmar were obsessed that I worked for MI6. Um, you know, and speaking here in Sydney, Australia, it was never ASIO. Right. Never the CA, always <laughs> MI6, right. because there's a pervasive view amongst those old military guys in Myanmar that the Brits still control everything. Right. The behind it all, behind Washington and all that, is the old enemy. Right. Perfidious as Albion is there. <laughs> it's, it's behind everything. Um, yeah, so always MI6. So they put me on trial for being, yeah, as you say, mate, a, a spy. And when, when they did that, then I knew I was there for a much longer period. But even then, you know, I'm still thinking, okay, the trial's over. I'll be convicted because as soon as you charge, you'll be found guilty. And then I thought, then they'll send me out of the country because it doesn't make sense. Why would they do this? You know, they're so on the nose. They're so bestial in their response to everything, you know, that, that they have no friends anywhere in the world. But why would they keep this foreigner there? I'm just a point of interference. You know, foreign countries are going off and all that. It'd be much better for them just to send me out. And so I always thought that logic would say that, no, they're going to try and get me out as soon as possible. But but that's when I made the, you know, a very profound mistake because this wasn't rational or logical in the first place. Uh, that That's not what this was about. So, yeah, so I was, I think, falsely optimistic for a lot of the period. Um, it didn't stop me, but, but yeah, I think and, it was a false hope. Did it cross your mind that they might come to the conclusion that it, actually, why don't we just put him in a bag with some bricks and chuck him in the sea? That they would get, you know, they would get rid of you, but not rid of you back to Australia, get rid of you down a hole. Absolutely, right. So, so the deep fear in the sort of the knot of my stomach, if you like, was exactly that. Um, I didn't think they would execute me in a public way, no. although at one point I was on death row with you know prisoners who, who were genuinely bound for the gallows sort of thing. But um, no, what, what, what I feared was that I would either die from neglect or that I would have some quote-unquote accident. Um, yes, and and the tr- and and that had two channels in my thoughts. Mate. One is that the environment really was unsafe. You know, the food and the conditions were unsanitary, and disease spread around. And all that it was a high stress environment. On top of that, um, you know, people my age dropped dead all the time. So I and and I got COVID five times, and and so yeah. So there was very real risk of like a genuine accident. But then what I feared was, well, what about something that looks like an accident? And and there were times where I was completely alone. Um, I remember one night waking up with a warder in my cell, just standing there. And and to this day, I don't know what he was doing. Um, and, uh, you know, he then sort of went out again. But, uh, but I remember thinking at the time, he's come to kill me. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, that, that's right. I, I sort of buried that deep, I think. But, but that is surely just as conceivable as was, you know, the hope of being released. But um, again, because of the irrational, self-justifying environment that, that you described. And amazing support from your fantastic wife, but also some strange characters, not strange, some, some, some uh, remarkable characters come in, enter stage left, 
King Charles. And tell us about that. Absolutely. So so he so often gets a bad press, but look, I love the man. He was very early. He wrote a letter to my wife, Ha, about just a few months in. But why? Just, what, why would he? Well, so there, there is a bit of a connection, but the connection is not to do with me. King Charles was a good friend of Aung San Suu Kyi's husband, Michael Aris, who died of cancer gosh, 10, 15 years ago. And so he's always had a bit of a watching brief, if you like, over her and things uh, going on in Myanmar. And of course, again, uh, Myanmar as Burma, part of the British Empire. And, you know, he's a very clever man just across so many things. So because of that link, he, he got to know about it. He became very concerned about the coup. Then he got to hear about me. Wrote her, yeah, as I say, a beautiful letter just saying that, look, there, there wasn't much official he can do, but that he's watching. And, and that if there's anything sh- that he can do for her to let him know and all that. And he sent a number of letters in the same vein all throughout. And then in one of the most remarkable experiences of my life, when I got out... I had to go to England soon after getting back to Australia to give evidence, actually, at some of the some of the things that have gone on in Myanmar on behalf of Burmese refugees and things like that. Anyway, so Har and I go over to England and we suddenly get this email from King Charles PA just saying, would we mind, would it be convenient to drop by and see him at Windsor Castle? And... I'm just trying to think how many milliseconds it took me to send an email back I've got saying, a bit on, mate. Leave me alone. <laughs> saying that we would be delighted. Um, and so we did that. We, you know, had to go to this particular gate of Windsor Castle. And, uh, you know, so we went to this gate and was meant met by this wonderful young man who was one of his equerries. Um, so suddenly all these these labels, these old mm. medieval labels and sort of people and a lady-in-waiting, yeah. I think, greeted us as well. Um, and then, you know, introduced to, to King Charles, who just could not have been nicer or more humble, just an extraordinary man and, um, you know, wanted to know obviously all about Myanmar, very concerned about, you know, mutual friends, uh, democracy activists, things like that, you know, very concerned about all of that. Um, but just lovely to Har as well. So my wife Har's from Vietnam and he was very interested in that and asking about Vietnam and her family and how we come to meet and all that. But yeah, just wonderful. I, you know, um, I've become a monarchist all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so well, well England, uh, you, you keep on giving me these superb links because your place on Five My Life is the Prospect of Whitby pub, unless I've got it wrong. That's the one in uh, London, the, the oldest pub in the world, I think, 1520 it was set up. Uh, is that the one, the Prospect of Whitby pub on the Thames? It's very, very old. I think it's... It can absolutely justify being the oldest pub on the Thames. I think there's a lot of fighting about what is the oldest pub, (laughs) more broadly. Um, Yeah, so, well, I nominated that for a couple of reasons, I suppose. London is my favourite place. It's the tired old Australian thing, right? Um, I finished uni and went to England in in the way that people... I think they still do. I think Australians still do. I mean, it used to be, you know, such a thing, de rigueur in the 60s, 70s, 80s, etc. So I, I'm doing this in the 80s. I went to London and just fell in love with the place to an obsessional degree. And I don't like to be away from London too long. So as soon as I thought about a place, I thought, okay, it's got to be London. And then I thought, all right, now let's narrow it down. 
where in London. And then I just thought, you know what, the prospect of Whitby, because it's a pub, it's an old haunt of pirates and smugglers. It's right on the Thames there at Wapping. Um, and, and when you're there, its windows just look, it sort of overhangs the river. Uh, but on the other side of it is sort of an old cobbled street. It's often foggy and misty. So all the cliches about London sort of just come together in this pub and it's full of sort of nautical items throughout the pub um, and it just takes you to a different place. And and I guess for me too, it's, it's convenient. To, well, actually, it's not that convenient to get to, but it's convenient in a sense where if you meet up with friends or visitors or family, you just say, Let's meet at the prospect of Whitby because everyone knows where it is. So, yeah, and I've just had such good times there. But there were a few pubs I hastened away. And, and I'm a little bit worried because the specific locations in London were all pubs. <laughs> <laughs> but the prospect of Whitby, I thought, no, that's got to be number one. Your last choice on Five My Life is always the possession. And uh, you have chosen a wonderful uh, item. I've seen a uh, fabulous picture of it. It's an elephant made out of three-in-one coffee sachets given to you by your fellow prisoners banged up in uh, insane prison. It's about the size of a fist. And as you said, Nigel, it's, it's in the shape of an elephant and, and very good. I mean, it looks like an elephant. But it's made out of those three-in-one coffee sachets that are really popular throughout Asia. So w- when we say three-in-one, it's coffee, sugar, and sort of a yeah, fake milk, basically. Right. Extremely sweet. Um, they're sort of so sweet, your teeth go on edge when you, when you drink the coffee. And it comes in a tea form as well. But yeah, always three-in-one. So everyone had these in the, in the prison. It was the only way you could drink coffee and tea, basically. Um, and so this, this other prisoner, again, I don't know how he did it. The skill of doing this is just extraordinary. He managed to weave them all together. And in the elephant, there would be about probably 100 of these sachets all woven together to form an elephant. And he came and presented it to me and said, Sean, thank you for all you, you have done and are doing for our country. Um, I would like you to accept this. And, of course, I, I had to – one of the biggest struggles I had was to keep it safe, to keep it – because it's, it's fragile. And uh, and I was constantly being moved around. So I was in four prisons across that, that period. Um, so whenever we moved and, – and the guards were, were not gentle about your possessions. And in fact, they would seize your possessions all the time. So one of my insecurities was always that things were being seized, but again, particularly books and you know the importance of those. But things were always being seized. And I worried that they were going to seize it from me. Right up to the final moment of being released, I thought maybe they wouldn't let me bring it home because you know it said so much about the prison. Uh, but I was able to get it home. Yeah, it's my most valued possession. I, I, I didn't know how to respond to the prisoner, another political prisoner, a young guy, when he gave it to me. Um, this was of such meaning and, and so on. I mean, just to tie up what we are talking about before, it even has a monetary meaning because in the prison, coffee sachets are the currency. Currency, yes. Yeah. So yeah. we're used to the stories of World War Two of cigarettes, you know, being the currency. But in, in Myanmar, cigarettes are so expensive and people want to smoke them. And, and so, yeah, they don't last as a currency. But the thing that lasted as a currency, that formed as a currency, were these 
coffee sachets. And bizarrely enough, too, always the local brands were the, were the highest value. They were the Swiss francs of the system because they were full of sugar. And me and my people love the really sugary coffee and tea. Whereas I had sent to me, out of choice, just the sugar-free black coffee. And, and they were worth nothing. Nobody <laughs> wanted to exchange them. They were the copper coins. Yeah, so it had sort of a monetary meaning as well. But yeah, but, but that elephant is, is sitting at home. It's our, the, the prized possession that I have, have at home. Yeah. Do you know what's happened to the, the chap who made it? He's still in the prison. Yep, still right. in the prison um, on a, I think it's a 14-year sentence oh, on yeah. terrorism charges, which I has no way to completely fake. Mm. Uh, he was just a young guy protesting against the regime. But, yeah, he's one amongst still 20,000 of them in, in prison mm. in Myanmar still. Um, so that, that adds to the poignancy and so on of it as well. And, and I almost don't want to ask this question. It is, uh, what's your prognosis for Myanmar? Well, under the current regime, it's bad. You know, I, I see no hope, frankly. Um, you know, with my economist hat on, definitely not. I'm a bit more hopeful, to be honest, Nigel, right now. Um, and that is they have the, the military there. They've got all the equipment. They've got the ruthlessness and all that. Uh, they're not afraid of just massacring people, you know, mm. en masse. But they've suffered a significant number of setbacks in the last, literally the last week or two. They're on the back foot. They're on the back back foot morally, of course, but economically and in so many other ways, but now militarily as well. And people are beginning to give up on them. It's really interesting to watch people within the country, more defections of like low-level troops, but even splits at the higher level. Some allied countries like China beginning to step back. And, and you know, so, so now the trouble is we've been here before, so I don't want to be, you know, I'm... I don't want to be too hopeful, but I can't help it. I am just a little bit hopeful. And because once this military is out of the way, I'm incredibly optimistic about Myanmar because, again, you know, the, the younger people especially are so good um, and just, you know, give them a little bit of freedom and they turn the place around. I, I love your enthusiasm and your optimism. Uh, question for you. Advice for your younger self or indeed our listeners there aren't many humans in life who've been through what you've been through it doesn't mean just like getting old doesn't mean you're wise being banged up in a prison doesn't mean you're wise but uh reflecting one year on from being freed what advice would you give yourself life advice i think it would be that um but but this is maybe a bit hackneyed and cliched doesn't matter that things pass and that it's always important to step back and see the bigger picture, um, the arc of your life, if you like. So even in the prison, that I had that in mind all the time. It, and I think it partly comes from my reading, which is an obsession with history. So an idea of the, of the arc of history and one's place in it. The idea, too, of, of being true to certain things that... that History will judge well. And again, I, I don't want to, that, that sort of sounds a little bit self-justifying, but, um, but, but having a, a view of history, the direction of history, and seeing yourself in that is a way, a little bit of escaping yourself and your current circumstances, and that in the end, you'll, you'll sort of get there. But again, I, that, that sounds a little bit too fatalistic, but I, I've always been surprised in my life about how events and maybe this is justification after the event, but it seems to have bent in a way that it was always felt it was going to. Um, so, yeah, so I think probably keeping the long view, trying not to worry too much about the setbacks along the way, probably 
to calm down a bit, which might be the same thing. Calm down a bit. Don't worry too much about the day-to-day ups and downs. Enjoy life as it's going along. Yeah, I, I think that that's what I would say. I do like that. There's the Homer Simpson thing where poor old Bart is sitting on the on the, the, the doorstep. You see that, and he's going, Dad, this has been the worst day of my life. And Homer sits down next to him and hugs him and says, the worst day of your life yes. so far. Yes. <laughs> yes. No, it, it's brilliant. The, um, the, the, the Simpsons was actually a show that came to mind on many occasions. Where, and we had a running gag running through the whole thing was that there's a marvellous episode of The Simpsons where they debate who was Britain's greatest prime minister, Lord Palmerston or Pitt the Elder. And it was just one of those things. It was just apropos of nothing. It was an absurdity in the show. And we would bring that up all the time. about So who's best? Barberston or Pete the Elder. There's one final choice on Five of My Life, which is, who would you like to hear take the challenge next and why? Yeah, I'm pleased to be able to answer that because there's a person who stands out. She's a politician in the New South Wales Parliament now, but she was in the federal parliament. Her name is Janelle Saffin. And Janelle's one of those people who, um, so she's a politician and, um, you know, so she's involved in, in all the stuff. But she uses her office in good ways all over the place. Um, she was a very significant player in the independence movement for Timor Leste. Uh, but she's been involved in Myanmar down the years as well, like across 30, 40 years, always in the background, always doing the really hard work. Uh, that, that you have to do, you know, in, in movements like democratic movements and all that. Um, and she supported refugees here. Uh, she's just there as a constant presence. In the middle of my, or no, early on in my detention, she got in touch with my wife, Ha, uh, just to offer her help to Ha. And, and she was just, yeah, the bedrock of support for Ha. So, yeah, Janelle Saffin, MP uh, for up at Lismore, not sure the name of the seat, but she's up right up northern New South Wales. And and even her seat is interesting, actually, because it's a seat that is sort of half farmer, so sort of half really conservative, but it's full of a lot of like hippies and alternative lifestyle and things like that. So it's a very strange demographic of her seat. Remarkable woman. And something else she shares with us, Nigel, she's somewhat vertically challenged. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> I actually wrote a book called Observations of a Very Short Man, so I, I, I'm guilty as charged. That's a really wonderful recommendation. Thank you. Uh, and thank you for taking the format seriously. I, I have adored this conversation. I just love the phrase profound nest of love. I, I, I you know, I, I imagine your dear parents are no longer with us. I'd My father is still alive. Brilliant. Well, I will yep. send him this episode. What, 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 I mean, how wonderful would you feel wow. as a parent if your kid said that his childhood was a profound nest of love? I, I adore all your stories, but your wisdom about things will pass and yep. the long view and, and, you know, try to worry less and be calm. So, may uh, I hope your freedom journey continues and thank you for sharing your choices on Fire My Life. Well thank you so much Nigel this has been incredibly enjoyable mate and insightful. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you follow Five of My Life, you might enjoy my latest book, Smart, Stupid and 60. In it, I write about a number of the issues discussed on the show. It's the 20-year follow-on from my first book, Fat, Forty and Fired. If you have any feedback on the book or suggestions for the show, please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com. 